Hello and welcome back to the Brutheology podcast and part two of our discussion with Dan C. on recovering from an imperfect childhood and recovery. Today we'll start our discussion focusing on how this shows up in church life and how that impacts our spiritual growth. If you want to know more about Brutheology, you can find us at brutheology.org, at brutheology on Instagram and Facebook, or at brew underscore theology on X. If you have any questions, you can contact Ryan or Janelle at brutheology.org. Thanks for joining us today, and I hope you enjoy the rest of the discussion. In your reflection on the ACA, you've shared with us how it's impacted your life and also how it's impacted your view of church and how they could do things differently. Can you share a little of what that looks like and how might the church be a healthier place for wounded souls? One of the things that occurred to me is sort of how 12 steps are run. They're essentially autonomous groups of people that in some cases just want to get well, right? Sometimes you just get people that are like, I need to break this addiction. I need a a support group. And they don't necessarily have the benefit of somebody that's further along the path that can meet. And so it's a different perspective. I remember preachers talking about, I'm going to set up a booth just outside the gate of hell and deflect people before they go through the gates. And the ACA approach, well, the 12-step approach is, I don't know, you set up your booth inside hell, right? And the people that are there, they know hell. They've been there. You don't have to tell them, do this or you'll have problems. They've had the problems. And so they're looking for a way to to not have problems anymore. But they've got a credibility because they get it. And it's not just one booth. It's every booth. There's one that's addressing the drinking. There's another one that's addressing the sex. There's another one with the food. There's another one obsessed with success. They're all there. And they speak your language. I think there's a weakness in sort of how we create church leaders is that we send them to seminary, right? And we teach them a whole bunch of stuff and then say, go build a community. And they do that. And it's got to be scary as hell to be the leader of a church, but they're trusting on what they were taught. Whereas the 12-step approach is, it's all experience-based, right? You're coming out of I know this program works because it worked for me, period. Everything's about how to change your life today and tomorrow and next month. And so it's, it doesn't have this focus on, on this theology of believe this list of things and you will be saved. Saved when? Saved when you die. And it's like, that's a long time from now, I hope. I need to get through tomorrow. I need to not blow up at my spouse tomorrow. And today, there's a lot of 12-step groups that like meet at 7 a.m. They're literally trying to strengthen you for the day. And so it's a different approach to God, I think. The 12-step higher power, and and I guess sidetrack there, the the 12-step doesn't specify a particular God or whatever. They usually use the the phrase higher power. Some people use the, the word God. Atheists have used these programs successfully. It's a bit more of a challenge, but they can do it. And so it's allowing that mystery to exist. I think a lot of churches is like, we know exactly who God is, right? We've got these books of interactions with God, and therefore we know God. And I'm like, I feel like a mouse trying to say, I know who my experimenter is. I've been running this maze, and therefore that tells me who the scientist is that put me in the maze. And it's like, yeah, that, that little brain does not understand God. 
where was I going with all this? So it's a different approach to God and it allows it to be very personal, which I think ultimately is more effective. People have to have their own relationship with God or higher power or whatever you want to call it. And 12-step will not prescribe what that looks like to you, just that you're relying, you're reaching out to a higher power and saying, I need help. And I believe there's something out there that can help me. And we know from the fact that AA has been around for nearly a century that it works. The atheist scientist in me is you do the experiment and you pay attention to the results. You don't let your preconception of whether there's a God or, or not or what that God looks like change the fact that it has changed more lives than any other approach we've seen. Have you found that any churches in your experience have used at least some of these models in this framework within any of their programming, their even overarching philosophy of ministry as a church? Because I know a lot of them we, we like to compare and contrast, and there is that to do for sure, things that churches can learn as a whole. But any specific churches that you say, actually, they're doing this pretty damn well. I've heard of churches that are recovery churches that definitely embrace this approach. I haven't been to those myself. There are so many churches out there and I've visited hundreds, but that's out of what, hundreds of thousands. But yeah, and that's a, I kind of contrast stuff and poo-poo the church and hopefully you can come back with a yes, but my church gets this right. And please write in with your comments with the good churches because we want to hear about that. But it's, yeah, there are many different kinds of churches out there and certainly don't speak for them all. But I think there's a tendency for church to organize, right? The denominational churches, it's like they're trying to do the right thing. They're trying to come up with a consistent message and be strong and provide the best way they know how. But there's kind of a, a question in my mind, is being more organized actually an asset? As soon as you start getting into these, we're the Baptists or whoever, and this is our theology's docket, that means people aren't figuring it out for themselves, right? And going, this is what my interaction with God and how that works for me and acknowledging that it may be different for somebody else and that it may change. We certainly see that at times. I see new people coming to the church and often it's a huge boost because it actually does fix some of their problematic behaviors and gives them a support community. And it's great. But then as they move further along, often they sort of hit a brick wall that your choices are either go pro, go to seminary and go do it full time or, or stay where you are. And so there's not sort of advanced stuff. And so they often have to do the deconstruction. They step back and go, this is me figuring out how this works for me. And some of that means stepping back from what the church is preaching to the common people. But that personally one experience is super valuable. And you talk to those people and you realize they're grounded in a way that the church usually doesn't generate, right? It's the church was a start and then they had to take that and go do their own thing and develop that personal experience, both with God and relationships and how all this weaves together. What would Jesus do is, it's kind of a nice talking point to look at stuff, but you know, Jesus didn't have Facebook 
And so you have to sort of say, I've got to deal with today's problems. And certainly there's great stories in the Bible. I love the Gospels as far as looking at what Jesus did, but but I can't directly translate stuff from his era and his culture into what car to drive. There's all kinds of different factors. And we all know that it was a Honda that the disciples drove then. Say we're in one accord. Hey, right? (laughs) Dad joke. So I keep thinking that this is ultimately about vulnerability. And if you start off with that foundational platform with with your organization or alliance, then everything kind of flows from that. Whereas the church doesn't really start with vulnerability, does it? It's more unilateral. It's a, and this is sort of my, I'm going to call a soapbox myself here. When you just have one person in an organization, let's say it's a local church, or it could be like a bishop or get to even Catholic church. Oh, it can get dangerous. This is the one voice that we're listening to. And then, so you think that person's ever going to be vulnerable? Probably not. We, in our Western world, set ourselves up to fail one another because we've done that. But in this setting, in a, in an AA setting, we're all broken. So let's start with, let's start with that. Let's start with that. Churches should be that way. I mean, if you think about it, ideally, going back to the disciples being of one accord, the reason they were probably one accord early on, I know that's an I- idyllic sort of situation. Nobody really knows what that looked like, but they were probably a bit vulnerable and broken at, at the beginning. And they were ostracized and they were nobodies and they were on the fringe of society. But now the church has to be, look at us, city on a hill. So that we have to have the person who is shining that light on that city on a hill. Look at us, look how awesome we are. Kind of backwards. I don't know. I just keep thinking about vulnerability being the key missing ingredient, perhaps. In, and not just in churches, there's one example, but then in a lot of groups in our Western world that, that like, hey, look at these people. Like, well, we're not vulnerable. We're going to we're going to fail each other. Yeah. Well, you in have ourselves. to be vulnerable to go deep. I think that's clear. I think there's value in the community aspect. I used to poo churches. It's like it's a social club that talks about God, but mostly a social club. But I've come to appreciate that more because it's a social club. Actually, starting with community is not a bad place to start. You have to sort of be aware that community has its risks and its dynamics and, and its limitations. One thing that I find interesting, it, have, have you ever talked about Dunbar's number? Rule of 150. Sky archaeologist Dunbar, who's, and I may have completely gotten the name wrong, but I think that's correct looked at village structure back in medieval times. And he said there was a repeatable pattern that villages would grow to about 150 and then trouble would start. Beyond that, you can't really know people well enough. And at 150, even you don't know people all that well, but Mrs. Smith and you wave to her and the blacksmith and sort of you can track a group of that size in your head at a loose level. And above that, Usually they would run into trouble and eventually the village would split. And so half-ish would go off and form a knowledge, you know, half an hour down the road. Or, well, probably a couple hours down the road. If back in that era, it'd all be foot traffic travel. And there's a couple smaller numbers that actually work in there too. 50, 15, five, right? Five is a family unit. When you use five people, each other intimately. And had a guy talk about marriage and he was like, one of the things about marriage is exactly which buttons to push if you want to push buttons and you have to choose to not push those buttons. And sometimes if you've got to go there, you look at how to go there, right? Because in a small group, 
all those stuff. 15 is kind of the extended family, all the cousins and stuff, or it's a great work group. And so you've got people that some better than others, but you're all working together on stuff and you can stay fairly focused. And then there's sort of a, a greater 50 in there. And so it always puzzled me that we, we love these mega churches, a church of thousands. And it's like, what are we doing? You can't know those people. And so some groups, some churches do small groups. And I think all the best experiences I've had in church were in the small groups, right? They're in that 10 to 15 size and you can get to know people well and you've got some continuity. But I, I've done a whole lot of church shopping and nowhere on the front page was we have small groups. And sometimes they're like buried in the back thing. It's like, oh yeah, we do have small groups. A lot of them don't do it at all. And it's like, I, I think... And, and well, and brew theology does this, right? You get together with a dozen people and then you split it into groups of five to seven around a table and you can have an actual conversation at that level. And so I think there's a lot of value in sort of thinking about group size and how you can talk and what that allows in terms of vulnerability. And then there's a missing piece where, because that church of 150 is a good economic block in today's culture, but I think there's a gap in the middle that we don't really know how to cross, how to collect some of the things that we're getting down in the small groups and bring them up to a larger scale because there's a lot of wisdom in these churches and in the people in them. And it's like, I don't think we exploit that. We get the wisdom of the people on staff and that's great. And I don't think we'll ever get rid of staff. I'm not sure we want to, but I think we're missing out on some of the stuff that's present in the church. One thing that came up for me as you were talking is another barrier that we kind of have built, and at least in the traditions we came from, is purity. Uh, you talk about AA builds their booth inside the gates of hell because they've all been there. And when the goal of the group or the church is purity, I can't get dirty with vulnerability. Can't do it. Can't risk it. Can't share it. It's not an absolute. There are lovely stories of spaces where those small groups do become vulnerable spaces that aren't about making people feel guilty for how sinful they are and how they failed and how they're never going to measure up. It can happen. But I would say that's not the expectation necessarily, because when we start getting too vulnerable, we start getting too messy well, then clearly there's some hidden sin in you or there's some you're not focused enough or you need to do more devotions. I mean, I've just I heard that so many times. And so I think that emphasis on purity, a pure life, a sinless life definitely gets in the way of that vulnerability. Yeah. One of the 12 step things is the slip. People will slip. They're sober. They might be sober for years or decades, and they'll have a slip. And there's a humility. They realize this can happen any day. And so it's one of those things that setting a boundary that I'm not going to slip up doesn't work, right? But I can do a boundary, which is I'm sticking with my community, and I'm making sure that I'm engaged and that I have people I can call when there's feelings I need to process. And so you're looking at what are your personal tools to deal with the things that drove you to use various substances or activities to bypass the stuff that you need to be dealing with. 
One of the things you don't see in 12-step is guilt. There's no point in adding any kind of guilt or shame onto people. Stuff happens, and the goal is to stop happening, period. The fact that you slipped means, well, how do you stop slipping for today and tomorrow? The slip is its own negative reinforcement. You don't need more than that. What? You don't need more than that? Come on, Dan. It's interesting. When you start looking at the addiction as a symptom, right? Why did they start drinking? Because their marriage is falling apart. Why is their marriage falling apart? Because they don't know how to actually relate to each other. Because they don't know how to process their feelings. They don't know how to have those conversations. You know, you need somebody that you can talk to actually work through that stuff and go, and I'm afraid to initiate because that worked badly when I was a kid. And that's, that can be a very deep fear you need to let go of. That's sort of another personal insight is all this stuff is stuff that you have to let go of. You can't beat it into submission because it's when you fight the dragon, you make it stronger. But if you let go of it and have a way to just go in a different direction, then it loses all its, its power. It loses its strength. And I don't, it doesn't make a good sermon. It's not fiery to talk about it that way, but that's the reality I found is that a lot of this is from fears that came from interactions I had when I was a little kid and didn't know any better. And when I thought avoiding asking for anything is the way to maintain a relationship. And guess what? <laughs> People need each other and you've got to be willing to ask and it will build a stronger relationship when you do, if they're a person that can do that. And sometimes you go, sometimes there's some people that, that, aren't ready for that relationship and sometimes they're family and you have to deal with that. Where does mentorship fit in here? How, how does somebody who's been down this journey a little bit longer, somebody who's entered into this phase, how do those relationships form? What does that look like day to day, week to week? And how's that different from like your typical accountability discipleship in the church world? Oh, I'm not even sure I know what the latter really looks like. The A word is sponsorship. Some other programs use co-sponsor. I know ACA likes to use fellow traveler. If you've been in ACA and you realize how much shit is in the, in the caboose, so to speak, you never feel like I'm perfect. I can sponsor somebody and mentor them and tell them the exact right answers because you become very aware of how few of those, the right answers you actually have. And yet you often do. You often actually know a lot of good stuff. And so the co-sponsorship is just saying, if you take the time, spend time with people that are a little less far along with you, you've got more wisdom in you. And there's another side of this. There's actually a blog out there called Mr. Sponsor Pants. And he talks about, you learn so much by sponsoring other people when you actually have to take your experience and put it into words. And it both makes you live it more, but also it clarifies the experience you actually have. And so, yeah, a lot of times you get some people that are, they've be, been sponsors for 20 years and they're the modern day gurus on mountains that you meet in Starbucks or wherever. It can be as simple as a weekly conversation. Some people, when you're first trying to, to get sober, often it's daily, right? Your boundary, your tool is you will talk to your sponsor every day. And when that eventually is silly because for the last X weeks, you're like, I'm okay, but it's actually worth having that conversation and call him up and saying, Hey, here I am. I'm okay. 
and we'll check in tomorrow and maybe we'll have coffee once a week. But yeah, those relationships, those personal relationships are key. We Back to Dunbar's number, you can have a relationship with two that's at a different level than you have with a group you're seeing every day or every week for a dozen. Um, there's an account accountability there. There's a lot more wisdom than you realize there. And the sponsors all have sponsors too. That's one of the things they learn is they need somebody they can call too. I've seen that in churches where often the pastor doesn't have somebody to call and they often have to make an intentional effort to reach out in the local community to talk to other pastors that it's like, yeah, they understand the questions you have and the challenges. And so they have to have somebody they can call and groups that they can go to. And the fact that to a certain extent, it's a circle, sponsors, mm -hmm. sponsoring, sponsors, sponsoring, sponsors, and it still works. It's all about having a couple key relationships. And so when something comes up with a relationship or somebody in the family dies and it affects you more and differently than you imagine, knowing that there's somebody that you're just used to talking to is huge. Do you have any resources you recommend? Where would people start if they need to start this journey? How do they do that? Let's see. There are lots of resources. It depends on where you're going. So we did that curriculum a while back, and that actually has a pretty nice resource section in it. Okay. So going to aa.org is a good way to start. It's the original, and all the other 12 steps often play off of AA. And so sometimes I was doing the workaholics program, and at times they're like, go to the AA big book and reference these pages. And it's like, okay. So it's worth knowing something about AA. Wikipedia has good articles that will give you an overview if you want a sort of a nice documentary level look at the space. You can go there and look at Alcoholics Anonymous. There's a list of 12-step groups that's there with links to most, if not all of them. I'm obviously a big fan of ACA or ACOA. So adultchildren.org is, is a main reference from there. And Google's your friend. If you're looking for Hoarders Anonymous, Google Hoarders Anonymous, and you'll probably get some good references coming up. Most of them have, I mentioned the ACA laundry list. You read through that. And for me, it was an aha moment. There's no clear threshold, but it's like, if you've got more than a handful of these, ACA might be for you. And I went through them and it's like, okay, I've got like eight out of 14. Yeah, that's definitely for me. Workaholics has their 20 questions. There's usually sort of a how to identify whether this group's for you statement somewhere in, on, on a website that will very quickly sort of help you realize if this is for you. If you're dealing with multiple things, you got to look at what's messing up my life. If I have a problem with spending and money and can't get that under control, then I would start there. And then you can go, okay, I've also got some parent issues. Once I'm, you know, stable on one front, then I can start looking at the other things. It helps to be still and think about it. If you're good at meditating, that's a great place to start. Meditation is in the 12 steps. Some churches embrace that, some don't. And then reach out. One of the things you'll find is 12-steppers are more around than you think. And so you start saying, hey, I've been thinking maybe there's some group that could help me with something and ask around. And often you'll find a group and a local contact that, that might be your initial sponsor. And there's definitely a culture of supporting each other. 
in all the 12 scrub groups. And so we usually have to sort of twist people's arms. It's like, there's a phone list, use it. And so, yeah, reach out, look around. They're usually not that hard to find. With COVID, there's a lot more online meetings. There's an argument that in-person is better and it's hard to refute, but my workaholics meeting gets people from multiple countries because the time works for them. And workaholics have this tendency to be very busy. And so trying to meet a specific meeting in person sometimes is just not going to work. You're much better off getting an online meeting than no meeting. And I think there's a lot of good out of just having that regular community. Well, thank you, Dan. This has been awesome. And thank you for opening up these ideas and these options for us and helping us see some of these pathways that we didn't know about before. Um, and just, yeah, encouraging us to be vulnerable and to find spaces where we can find that with other people. I think that's critical. So thank you. My pleasure. Namaste to Dan, to Janelle. Yes, that's a, that's a posture that I have. I've known about for years, but I, I mean that. And I, I do see the light inside of you, Dan, and I honor that light. And I hope that we can honor it in each other, in our spaces, whether we're gathering in two, three, five, but hopefully we can find those people. So let's honor each other by being vulnerable because we're all broken. So cheers to you all who are listening. I hope that you find this meaningful in your own life. So share it with others. And yeah, we'll see you next time around. Peace.